Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the circumcision prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. But after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, they arranged for Paul and Barnabas and some others of them to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem concerning this controversy. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, explaining in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they created great joy among all the brothers. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Then the apostles and the elders assembled to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Why then are you now testing God by putting on the disciples' necks a yoke that neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. Then the whole assembly fell silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describing all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written, After these things I will return and will rebuild David's tent which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and will set it up again so that those who are left of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does these things which have been known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those who turn from, to God from among the Gentiles, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, and he is read aloud in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, decided to select men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote this letter to be delivered by them. From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers from among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Because we have heard that some to whom we gave no authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision, and ours, to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, 
you will do well. Farewell. Then, being sent off, they went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and strengthened them with a long message. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. Most holy God, thank you that we have one way that we all come to you. We come to you not by any merit or worth of our own, but we come to you by your grace that you've given to us, that you've, you've called us by name, that you've chosen us, that, that, Lord, we respond to you in faith, Lord, placing our faith in what Jesus Christ has done and not in anything to do with ourselves. God, our access to you is by your grace. Lord, may we magnify your grace this morning. May we remember your grace this morning. May we revel in and rejoice in your grace, Lord. And may we try to add nothing to your grace. And God, I pray that we might extend your grace to each other because of what we've been given. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What would you do if you thought that all the things that you knew about yourself were immediately changed? What would you do if it was suddenly revealed that you had family members that you didn't know about? What would you do about if, if, you, if you found out that you all shared the same father, but you had, you had no knowledge of them? What if your family customs were immediately changed as a result of that? You see, the Jews, they were facing these challenges. They They were God's people. They were called to be God's people. And God now was bringing in Gentiles. And everything they knew about how they came to God had changed. Everything they knew about their traditions and their customs was being challenged. Would they still keep the old family ways of living? Would they still keep those old ways that that their father had told them to keep when their father now has adopted the Gentiles in? This was a perplexing, challenging question for the Jews. They'd been taught in their family, Abraham's family, to live and to act in ways that were pleasing to God. And now these new family members, they were doing some of the very things that the Jews were told not to do. And so you can understand that the Jews were challenged. And so today, in our day, we, we, we get kind of confused. Why were they trying to get them to go and be circumcised again and to, and to live according to all the customs of Moses? Well, because God had told them to do that. And then almost overnight, almost overnight, he says, I've fulfilled those things now. And now you come only through the merit of my son. But yet they didn't quite understand that fully. The Gentiles weren't weren't just a trickle by this time. This is probably 15 years later when we get to this point in the book of Acts. Now they become a flood. And most were being accepted into the covenant family and being baptized without even the mention of any of these, these Jewish family rituals that they were used to that went hand in hand with the identity of God's people. And so the Jews are concerned 
What does it mean to be a part of God's people? If all of these things have to do with the identity of God's people and that we're supposed to be separate, we're supposed to be called out, we're supposed to eat differently, dress differently, act differently, and, and yet these Gentiles are being accepted and they're not dressing differently. They're not even becoming Jews. They're not becoming part of the nation of Israel. In fact, they're keeping their own national status. And so the Jews were concerned. I hope you see the problem here for the Jews. These men were coming into the church now from Judea, it says in our text, if you look down in our text. It says, men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers that unless you be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so they're going out at, probably out of good motives, trying to, to figure out how can we help these Gentiles live like they're supposed to as part of God's family. But they were mistaken. The problem is they had missed something important. They had missed something critical. They had missed really the main idea of the message of God's grace. And it's really the main idea that I think God would have for us in this text today. It's that by God's grace, we're free to come to Him and live in His grace. By God's grace, we're free to come to him, and then we're free to live in his grace. So I think they got the first part, that God had given them grace, that they were free to come to him, but they didn't understand that because we come to God in grace, we're free to live in that grace, no longer under obligations to fulfill the law. These Christian brothers, they weren't evil. They were Christians coming from Judea. They were trying to teach people. They were misguided, though. I can think of a lot of people today, um, especially in this area, which is, is known in a lot of circles for the keeping of man's laws and rules and ways of doing things. They're brothers, but there may, may be some who are misguided. These men in, from Judea thought they were doing was good and godly. The only problem was that they were negating the grace of God. Legalism, it doesn't just negate the grace of God, though, it weighs people down. It divides them. And it's the first principle we're going to look at in this passage, that legalism is the opposite of God's grace. And legalism, it divides and it weighs down. Legalism divides and it weighs down. Maybe you've experienced that in your own life personally. You've experienced that division that legalism has caused in your own life, or maybe in your church, or the family. Maybe you experience the, the weighing down of feeling like you have these, these burdens. You have to live in a certain way and perform in a certain way and act in a certain way. That's the fruit of legalism. It, it divides and it weighs down. In the 1700s and 1800s in our own country, there was a hideous and a horrible practice of systematically dividing people based on their ethnical differences. People were divided primarily by skin color, by externals. Divisions were made based on these externals, and then many of our forerunners weighed people who looked differently, who had different colors. They weighed them down with burdens of slavery. And so we had the hideous institution of slavery in the United States for several hundred years. And the sad fact is that all of this was done even though we were part of the same race, Adam's race, made in God's image. There was external distinctions made that, that divided and weighed down. 
Legalism is more subtle, but it does the same thing. It puts people into bondage. It puts people into slavery. Legalism, although it's more subtle than the externalities of skin color, it's often based on externalities of what you look like, how you act, what movies you see, where you go, who you talk to, who you hang out with. And it, it divides God's people, and it weighs down. And it puts people into slavery again under a yoke, as Peter will say later. And these men had come into the church. They were dividing the church in Antioch, but it wasn't because they weren't well taught. It wasn't because they had ineffective pastors. Think about it for a moment. They had the apostle Paul. This was perhaps one of the best pastors in the entire New Testament. He was wise. He was discerning. He was caring. He said he cared for the flock like a mother hen cares for the chicks. He was loving. He was gracious. He also confronted firmly. He he brought wisdom to bear and discernment. He was probably the best teacher the church has ever known, the best theologian the church has ever known. They were well taught as a church. It wasn't because their church was weak or something was wrong in their church. Then they had Barnabas on top of that. Barnabas, he was actually, his name was Joseph, but he was so known as being an encourager, they renamed him. The apostles called him son of encouragement, Barnabas. This was a church that was well taught. It was probably a well-established, well-led church. I can't think of two better leaders in the New Testament to lead a church that I would want as my pastors. Could you imagine having Paul and Barnabas as your pastors? Well, they weren't immune in Antioch, though, to legalism. And that's important for us to realize. These are well-taught, mature people, well-led by some of the best leaders ever. They weren't immune to legalism. They weren't immune to division. They weren't immune to troubles. They weren't immune to difficulties. That's something for us to remember to do today, too, in our church, is that it doesn't matter what, how well-taught we are. We aren't immune to challenges and problems and divisions and being weighed down. And we need to be on guard. And so it tells us how Paul and Barnabas, they, they engaged. It says that after Paul and Barnabas, they had no small dissension and debate with them. And, and, and you know, Antioch, the, the church there should not have been swayed. They should not have given in to those ideas. They shouldn't even have wondered about it. They should have just said, you know what? No, we trust Paul and Barnabas. Paul's an apostle here. We've seen God working through him mightily. People have been converted. We were converted when the message was preached to us. But maybe they thought, maybe they were tempted to think, you know, these Judaizers, they're mature, and they came from, they came from James's church. That was a good church. So maybe they really do know what they're talking about. Maybe these more, seemingly more mature Christians really have, have got it right, and maybe Paul's got it wrong. And so there became this division in the church, so much so that they had to ask Paul and Barnabas to go, probably with two other ones who, who were opposed to Paul and Barnabas. They sent them out to Judea to figure out, is this really the gospel? Is this really what Christianity is all about? And Luke, he understates things and said there was no small dissension and debate This was a huge matter of controversy. The church was troubled. The Greek word for dissension is usually um, used of insurrection or rebellion. That means they had great arguments. They probably had a lot of discord over it, probably bordered on riots and rebellion. So the church sends them out. And they aren't going to Jerusalem because there's some kind of hierarchy or a church government in those days or because they, there's necessity. They're going to Jerusalem because of one thing. And Paul wrote about it elsewhere. And he says, I, I, 
I'm concerned that my, my labors for you have been in vain. He's writing to the Galatians. And he was concerned that if the good news of Jesus Christ meant that we still had to keep the law, then it was not good news at all. And so Paul and Barnabas were concerned to get the gospel right. And who better to go to than the apostles of Jesus Christ who had received the good news firsthand? They went because the core message of the gospel was at stake. There couldn't have been a more important question not only for that church, not only for that day, but for us today. If the good news of Jesus Christ means that we are saved by his grace only then to maintain our standing by our works, then that is hopeless. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not able to keep myself holy. I'm not able to do the good works that I need to do on a daily basis. I fail continually. I fall down. I stumble. I'm tempted. I give in to sin. I'm human, and I bet you are too. You see, if, if the gospel was you're saved by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, but then you have to keep it, we, it'd be a roller coaster ride. That'd be depressing because on the days when we were doing well, our confidence would be high. On the days we were doing poorly, our confidence would be in the ditch. And so this question's important, but you know, this is a question, a real question that we all wrestle with day by day, don't we? If you've ever felt like, oh, you know what, I've sinned today, I didn't have my quiet times, I was mean to my wife, I yelled at my kids, I, I was rude to my coworkers, I was ashamed of the gospel, I didn't share the gospel when somebody asked me about Jesus, and you go and you're condemned and you're feeling like, you know what, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian anymore. Well, you're really effectively living as the Judaizers were. And it's a question you need to come back to that I need to come back to all the time. Is is the gospel the grace of Jesus Christ plus something? Or is it the grace of Jesus Christ alone? In verse 4, Luke tells us he makes sure that he notes that they were well received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And why was he writing that? Well, it was important for the people who were reading Acts to know that they weren't seen as outsiders. They were welcomed warmly as fellow brothers in Christ. And the church listened to them. And he says, declare all that God had done with them. And then Luke notes that there were some Christians, now get this, these were believers, he said that there were some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. And they were the primary ones to say that it was necessary not only for the Gentiles to repent and believe in Jesus Christ to be saved, but it was necessary for them to do something else to be a part of the covenant community. And, and before you go on to condemn the Pharisees really quickly... Don't forget these are brothers. He says there were some amongst the believers who are the party of the Pharisees. There's some today, maybe in this church, and maybe who we know. Maybe we have Pharisaical leanings. doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It means you're struggling with legalism. If, if we can imagine we don't ever do that kind of thing, and no, I can, I can never imagine that I do that, I act like a Pharisee. Well, let me ask you, do you, do you ever put pressure on a person to conform to things that are not in Scripture. Have you ever placed pressure for people to conform to your way and your standard of doing things if they're really going to be holy, if they're really going to be a Christian? I think we all can put pressure on people to conform to our own group norms to be accepted in the church, and that's equally wrong. And that's, that's essentially what the Pharisees were doing. That's the heart of what they were doing. 
Before you get your hate on for the Pharisees, notice what Luke writes. He says, the men in Jerusalem, they were, they were believers. They were Christians. But they were still ingrained and tempted to legalism. And you need to remember that when, when you encounter somebody who's acting legalistically, don't, don't look at them hatefully. Remember, they're, they're fellow believers. They're trapped, but they're fellow believers. And they need the truth of God's grace to be breathed into their lives. They don't need to be mocked. In any case, it says, look down your Bibles, it says, they said it was necessary to circumcise them and to keep, and, and to order them to keep the laws of Moses. They weren't just saying it was a good idea in light of their conversion. They're saying it was necessary to be converted, to become a Christian. They were saying that it, keeping the laws of Moses or keeping holy or keeping the laws, keeping pure, it was necessary. And I think that's a problem that, that the early church faced, but it's not just a problem they faced, it's a problem that we face too. We face that challenge of believing that it's necessary to keep certain rules and laws in order to become and stay and maintain your status as a Christian. No one here would think of themselves as a Pharisee or legalist, and, and everybody here would hate to be called a Pharisee or legalist, Right? But just like it was something the early church was susceptible to, we are susceptible to the same kind of mentality, the same kind of attitudes, and it's a temptation that may look a little different for us. Maybe some of us think that if somebody's really a Christian, you're going to dress in a certain way, and if you come to church, you should dress in a certain way at church, right? Or you should act a certain way, or, or maybe you'll, you're, you're going to look a certain way to honor God, as if honoring God is a matter of outward observance and not a matter of the heart. Maybe some find it necessary to follow checklists on how to dress and impose their own personal guidelines as a requirement. The truth is, though, at the same time, on the other, other extreme, people can be legalistic about not being legalistic. I've been there. I know people are there. I'm not a legalist, so I'm not going to do anything that smacks of legalism. And then you trust in that as your righteousness, which is, in effect, legalism. It's trusting in, in your way of doing things instead of trusting in God's grace. And so people who say, you know, they rebel, I'm not going to have anything to do with all that churchy stuff that smacks of legalism, and I'm going to do things my way in this way, and I put confidence in that, that I'm pleasing to God because of that. Well, that, that is to legalism. Before you think this is an easy discussion, that you aren't legalistic or tempted, let me ask you, do you hold to any standards or traditions by which you measure anyone else? Do you hold to any standards or traditions by which you measure anyone else? You might not think you do, but let me ask some other questions. What if some Christians read things that you don't agree with? You still treat them with grace as fellow believers? What if some Christians do things differently than you? What if people are more strict in their parenting than you? Or what if some people are more loose in their parenting than you are? Maybe you've got a conviction about whether your kids should date or not, or have a phone or not, or participate in sports or not, or be homeschooled, or be classically educated, or public schooled so they can evangelize other people, or you subtly look down on people or think something's wrong with people and they're sinning if they don't do things your way. You ever find yourself there in your thoughts? Where you're judging, you're evaluating people based on your criteria and not scriptural criteria? 
You're taking principles and you're applying them to your life and that's good, but then you're taking that application and those practices that you've employed for your own life and you're fitting those practices onto other people and saying that other people must conform to your practices. You ever do that? I do. If you're honest, you're going to admit you do. We're all tempted that way because we all think that our way is the best way, right? Or at least most of the time we think our way is the best way. Maybe you look down subtly on other people. Maybe you believe that Christians should be stay-at-home moms or working moms or stay-at-home moms with businesses on the side. And, and, and you're, maybe your mom and you view your way of being a mother as superior to someone else. Be careful. That kind of legalism divides. Whether you have your kids at home or put them in daycare, put them in school or not, careful that you're not legalistic about that and apply, apply those things to other people. That kind of legalism, it divides and it weighs down. What about your traditions of what you will watch or won't watch on TV or movies or listen to? What about your view that, you know, if you're really Christ-loving, if you're really God-honoring, you're going to have a certain size or kind of house or a certain size or kind of car. And then you begin to judge other people who have certain sizes, houses, and certain kinds of cars. Maybe you only true Christians practice evangelism the way that you believe that a believer should. And if somebody doesn't practice evangelism like you do, then you start to judge them. You ever find yourself doing that? All of that is not confidence in, in Jesus Christ and His grace. It's confidence in our own standing, our own traditions, our own ability. We can all become proud and self-confident in our own way of doing things and put our confidence in ourselves and our performance. We can all kind of be like the Pharisees. And it affects how we act and how we treat other people. But if you see the early church here, it was dividing them. It was weighing them down. And so maybe you're here thinking, okay, I get it, Matt. I get it. I get it. Legalism's bad, all right? Legalism's bad. I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to guard against legalism. It's not that hard of a topic to deal with, really. I can't, I can't really grasp why it was so hard for them to get in the first century. But before you go there, don't forget that there are a bunch of scriptural commands to be holy as God is holy, that God commands about our holiness. He, I mean, He cares about our holiness. He cares about our sanctification. He cares that we are living in a way that's pleasing to Him. So it's not necessarily an easy discussion. We, we have to navigate waters that say, I need to live trusting God's grace, but I also need to live in response to His grace, seeking to be holy. So what does that look like? And the answer wasn't immediately evident to those believers who are Pharisees and the men from Judea and even the apostles because they, they actually had to sit down and debate this and figure out what does this look like? What, what does it look like to live a holy life? Does it look like keeping these, these laws? They wouldn't have deliberated if it wasn't a, a challenging topic. It's a challenging topic today, and it still divides people today. There's, there's been a debate that's been raging in the evangelical world about is, is grace mean that we, we focus on the grace of God alone, and that's our only motivation for, for living, and we don't focus on living holy lives? Well, well no. But is, does grace mean that we only focus on living holy lives? Well, well no. The grace of God has saved us so that we, we can live holy lives. 
like he's called us to. Jesus was concerned with our obedience, and Paul was too. He wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. These issues were important. They're important for us today that we wrestle with, that we grapple with it. It wasn't just straightforward. And after there'd been much debate, it says Peter stands up, and after he spoke, everyone was silent. Why is that? Well, he he was reminding them that what they thought was important or significant wasn't what God thought. He reminded them, he said, God chose to take this message to the Gentiles. So it's not about what you choose in this little council here, guys. It's about what God chose. God chose. God made the choice to take, for Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And the implication is, why would we dare to go against God's choice? And then he reminds them that God is the one who judges men by the heart, not by external actions. Now look down your Bibles in verse 8, if you will, please. Verse 80 says, And God who knows the heart... And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Peter says, it's clear that God looks on the hearts, and he looked on the hearts of the Gentiles who turned to him and gave witness to them that their belief was acceptable to him. And, and, and he affirmed this by giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he said, receiving his grace was a matter of the heart, not a matter of external actions. And then look down in your Bible in verse 9. He says, He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. The second principle, really, that we're going to see from this passage that Peter is making here is that all believers are accepted by God's grace alone through faith alone. All believers are accepted by God's grace alone through faith alone. The CIA has its headquarters in in Langley, Virginia, and it's a very restricted space. They have different perimeters and levels of security surrounding it. They're surrounded by woods after that as well. And only those who have earned a top secret clearance can work there. And the only way to get into the CIA headquarters, the only way to get into an office there is with a proper pass, and if you have access that's been granted to go into a compartmented area, And it's a privilege that's granted only if you qualify. Access into God's presence is tighter than that. Access into God's holy of holies, where God's presence dwells, is more secure than that. You see, God's presence can bear no sin. None of us are holy. None of us are righteous on our own. And so the only way for us to be accepted by God is to be found right and completely holy in Him. And that can only happen by God's grace. You see, the Jews for thousands of years have been trying, trying to attain righteousness on their own, and they were never able. And yet God sent one, his son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect life. And then he died in the place of the Jews and the Gentiles, all of us, so that we might be made right and holy and granted access into his presence, something that no one else is able to do unless God grants 
And he only grants that by his grace through faith. The requirements, Peter tells us, are the same for Jew and Gentile alike. And we all come to God in the same way, by his grace alone, through faith alone. I need that reminder every day. Because every day I'm tempted to either place confidence in myself and my ability to come before God because I've been such a good Christian, which that rarely happens. Or I struggle with discouragement and defeat because I'm aware of just how lowly and sinful I am on my own and how weak and frail I am. And I need to be reminded that it's not my merits that grant me access or keep my access into the presence of God. It's the merits of Jesus Christ by God's grace alone that come as I place my faith not in myself or my ability to even have faith, but in Jesus Christ. And that's the confidence that all believers need to have. We're not cleansed by outward observance or religious duties, but conforming to the law of Moses. Peter's saying we're not cleansed by acting or dressing or speaking a certain way. Peter's telling them that God cleansed them as they place their faith in him, just like God has cleansed us, Peter says. And he says no, God didn't make any distinction between those who keep the law outwardly and those who who don't. In both cases, the heart's made clean through faith. And so circumcision in the New Testament, what's the New Testament equivalent to circumcision? It's circumcision of the heart. God circumcises our heart by grace through faith. He makes us clean and holy. And so Peter goes on to say, if God cleanses all of our hearts by faith and if the Gentiles are equally accepted then any imposition of the law, look down your Bible, he says, is like a yoke being put around people's necks. He says, why are you putting a yoke around people's necks? Now, for those who didn't grow up around livestock or don't know about ancient agricultural practices, he's not talking about egg yolks here. He's talking about yokes that were put on oxen. There were these heavy wooden beams that were curved. They were put around the necks of oxen to restrict their movement, to weigh them down, to keep them in place. And then they would, they would be commissioned to pull a plow, typically. And they'd have to, to do this hard work and breaking up this hard ground. It wasn't easy. The oxen often strained against the yoke. It was hard, constrained, heavy work. And Peter says in verse 10 that adding requirements to be born again, it's like adding a yoke to the neck of the disciples. What kind of yoke do you add to the disciples? What kind of yoke are you taking on? What kind of yoke is weighing you down? That's keeping you constrained, that's weighing you down, that's, that's putting you into slavery again. And Peter says, like testing God, and he's saying, do you really want to test God in this? And he intends to warn them not to test God's goodness. It was just like people in the book of Exodus were warned not to test God's goodness. And he goes on further, and he says, you know, neither us nor our forefathers could bear this heavy yoke. So why would you ask the Gentiles to do that? That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to set us free from these yokes of slavery. Jesus came to lift the yoke off that you're carrying today. 
He came to to lift off those restrictions, to set you free, to be able to, to worship him and live for him in spirit and in truth without having to be constrained with these externalities and these ideas of being conformed into somebody else's image instead of being conformed to the image of God. And Peter reminds himself, reminds them of something believers everywhere need to be reminded of. Look down at verse 11. He says, but we believe. The question is, do you believe this? He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. He's saying that there's no entrance into God's covenant family apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that's received by faith in his finished work. And then Paul and Barnabas, we see in the account, they, they pipe up and they give testimony about what God has done and the signs and wonders, and, and they tell about all of they experienced in the Gentiles and how God has given testimony. The whole assembly fell silent when Peter talked in order for Paul and Barnabas now can speak and give testimony. And then James comes behind them and, and he affirms them. And look down at verse 15. Luke's showing us that James did not believe or teach the Gentiles should keep the law of Moses, despite the fact that Judaizers probably said he did. And in Galatians, we know that um, men from James came and tormented the churches in Galatia. But yet James is making clear he's not in agreement. And so in verse 15, it says, And with this, the words the prophets agree, just as it is written. And he goes on, he loosely quotes Amos 9. And it's clear when he's talking about the ruins being rebuilt, he says, the tent of David, the dwelling of David, these ruins that will be rebuilt. Look in verse 16, it says, after this, I'll return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. What's James talking about? What's he saying? Why is he quoting that passage? Well, he's talking about God restoring his own people to spiritual wholeness. He's talking about the ruins of a nation, a people who have been ruined by the effects of sin, who are going to be rebuilt and restored by God into a new building. This new building is made up of both Jews and Gentiles that that God has now, he has raised up, he has restored the tent of David, he's rebuilt them into a new building, the church. And so now Jew and Gentile alike are brought into this new, rebuilt, restored building, the church. Because God is all about rebuilding ruined lives. James is saying it was always God's intention to bring the Gentiles to seek him. He's saying through Peter visiting the Gentiles at Cornelius' house, God made it apparent. So it wasn't just Peter's testimony. It was a testimony of God's word through the prophets. And then James encourages them, don't trouble these Gentiles. They were being troubled because legalism is troubling. What are you you being troubled by now? Are you being troubled to conform? Are you being troubled to, to fit in? Are you in trouble to look like a certain way? Are you in trouble to, to dress a certain way, to act a certain way, talk a certain way in order to be acceptable before God? Won't be troubled any longer. Jesus came to set you free from your yoke. He also came to rebuild lives ruined by sin. And he came to restore us. 
But then interestingly, what does James do? He tells him to do some things. Why is he doing that? Is he going back to legalism? No, he's being wise. And it's the final thing that we're going to look at this morning is that he was teaching them that because we've received God's grace, he's teaching them a principle, because we've received God's grace, we're to extend God's grace. He was saying, I want you to do these four things. He says, free them. Don't, don't trouble them anymore with legalism and requirements. The grace of God is the only requirement to come before God. But I want you to be aware that you're living amongst Gentiles and Jews alike. Gentiles want you to be aware that you're living amongst Jewish Christians who have this background and everything overnight has changed to them, so be sensitive to them. That's what he's telling them. And so these four practices, this is not to earn any merit or favor before God, but these four practices are to keep the unity of the church and the bond of peace. It's so that there's no division within the church. You know, I was thinking about it. We're coming up on the Thanksgiving holiday this week. And this coming Thursday, most of us will probably overeat, intending not to overeat, but by the end of the day thinking, I, how did I do that? The reason I like Thanksgiving holiday is not because I like to overeat, but it's because there's some really biblical ideas there about showing gratitude and expressing thanks to God for his provision and, and giving thanks and, and for his undeserved grace. And there's this idea of, of feasting on the goodness of God. It's a godly idea. Now, most of us don't think that way. But hopefully, as you encounter this coming Thursday, you'll start thinking about that. You know, what, why are we feasting? I want, I, don't, I want a feast and celebration of the goodness of God. Because on, in, on the last day, when we are ushered into His presence, we're going to feast on His goodness. We're going to feast on the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's going to be a great celebration. So we're meant to feast on God's good grace. We're meant to relish His grace. We're meant to celebrate His grace and find joy and comfort in His grace and goodness to us in Christ. And one of the ways that we can express gratitude to God is by expressing that grace and extending that grace to other people. You know, Thanksgiving is a funny time, isn't it? We all get together with people we don't really like that much. Come on, if you're honest, you don't like all your relatives. Or maybe you do, it's just me, maybe. But we, I love them all, and I tolerate them all. <laughs> but, but I don't necessarily enjoy their company outside of the discipline at times of Thanksgiving. And I hope they're not listening to this message right now. <laughs> it's a funny time, though, because we all kind of try to recapture this this sense of wholeness of family that none of us really have ever had. You know, we try to recapture this idealistic kind of view and way of family and relating this perfect. We all have these grand notions, notions entering in, and, and most of the time those really aren't met. You know, because there's differences in our families. There's habits or behaviors that we don't like, right? We all have that weird uncle that, that just kind of drives us up the wall. And, but it's, it's the goal for most of us as we go into the holiday to, to set those, those differences aside and to maybe ignore them as much as we can and, and to come together in unity with friends and with family. And we might have to defer, and you're probably used to this. And hopefully by now you become mature enough that you realize you're probably going to have to defer to some friends who get a little loud or boisterous or express their opinions in ways that are not kind. And you have to defer and keep your mouth closed. You're going to have to Maybe defer to a relative what kind of food to have or to how to cook something. You might end up 
eating some dried out old turkey. Or you might, you might have to try some funky new crazy dish that our cousin brought, you know? You might end up eating jello with raw green and red peppers in it like I did a few years ago. It was interesting. Jello shouldn't have vegetables in it. But I didn't say much. At least I tried not to say much. We do those things because we love people. We want to we make efforts to defer to people, to bear with people. In similar ways that we set aside our differences and preferences and defer to each other to keep our peace in our earthly family. You know, there's, there's some things you remember. Okay, wait a minute. I probably shouldn't talk about politics I probably shouldn't talk about sports rivalries as I'm going into Thanksgiving. There may be some heated discussions around that, okay? And so you learn, how, how am I going to be loving? As so we set aside some of those preferences, we defer to each other. And that's what God intends for us to do in our church family as well, because there's a lot of different people here. You know, maybe, maybe you're the weird cousin, I don't know. Um, and, and we have to bear with one another. We all come from very different backgrounds. The Jews had been used to a way of living, and they had, that, that's all they had ever known. And so for them, it was very challenging for the Gentiles who were living in a very different way, embracing things. And they knew because Paul had taught them that meat sacrificed to idols was nothing. And so they celebrated and said, well, I don't care if it's sacrificed to idols. I'm still going to enjoy it. But yet, there's a principle here. They were to defer to the people who were weaker in conscience. And so that's what James is talking about here. You know, God's brought together in this church a motley family, right? If you're honest, we're a motley crew. Not the band, but we're a motley crew. We're, we're a very different, you know, we're, we're a varied people. There's many differences here. We look different. We smell different. Sometimes that's good. Not always. We have to bear with each other. None of us, though, none of us deserve His grace. All of us are rebels and orphans who've been adopted by the Father and brought into the same family. He's rebuilt our ruins, and He's brought us into His household. He's restored. He's made us new so that we can defer and extend His grace to other people. And that's actually how we grow. Do you know that? That's how we grow. We grow by being in a church where people aren't like us and they do things differently than us. And we grow in understanding God's grace to us and we grow as we learn to extend His grace to other people. And we're actually a means of God's grace by doing that. We can breathe grace into other people's lives. So the Gentiles were told to not do some of those things that would definitely tempt the Jews. Sexual immorality was something the Gentiles would have been identified with in their past and tempted to themselves. And it doesn't just defile. Paul, Paul tells us elsewhere, um, sexual immorality, every other sin is outside of the body, but sexual immorality, it, it defiles your own body. Why is that important? Why? Because we're not, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, we belong to the body of Christ. And so if we defile our own body, we're actually bringing defilement on the body of Christ. So don't indulge in that. And then he tells them some other things. Don't, don't eat meat that's been strangled. Because the Jews are going to be tempted because they've always grown up knowing that they're not to eat anything, that blood hasn't been poured out. And so they see you doing that, you're going, to, you're going to make it a hard time for them. So he tells them these four things, and he tells them why. Look down your Bibles. He says, for or because, 
He says, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What he's saying is that from ancient generations, wherever there is a community with a synagogue all around the world in that day, the Jews had been dispersed in, in the diaspora through the Babylonians and the Assyrians. They'd been dispersed all over the known world at that time. And he said, everybody knows there's distinctions of the Jews. Why should you do these things? Because all the Jews are going to live by these distinctions. And all the people in those communities are going to know that the Jews live by those distinctions. So if you are now partnered together with them as believers, just abstain for those things so it won't be confusing to the outsiders and won't offend the Jews either. So he warns them not to have anything to do with idolatry, and, and he tells them not to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols or strangled, not to eat anything with blood in it. And then we see, though, that because they were one people, both Jewish and Gentile, they're so very different, just like we are so very different. They are to abstain from the things that cause temptations to judgment and disfellowship, just like we're to abstain from things that calls temptations from, for our fellow Christians. If you know somebody is an alcoholic, you don't go out to drink with them. If you know somebody's stumbled by certain behaviors, don't hide it, but you don't flaunt it in front of them either. God has set you free, but you don't use your freedom for your own good. You use your freedom for the good of others. And so they're to live sensitive to the convictions of the Jewish brothers. And we see the whole assembly agrees in the spirit. And they send this delegation back with witnesses. And then the apostles, they also do something else. They commend Paul and Barnabas. And they say they're beloved. That was important for them to know that they were affirming Paul and Barnabas' ministry. And then look in verse 31. It tells us the results of this letter being read. It says in the church in Antioch, in verse 31, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. What was encouraging about that letter? It was encouraging. They didn't have a yoke of slavery anymore. They'd been set free. They'd been rebuilt. They'd been restored in Jesus Christ. It was encouraging that they didn't have to keep external requirements in order to be pleasing to God. It was encouraging that they came by grace alone, through faith alone. They'd been set free. They rejoiced. They were exceedingly glad because of the freedom they had in Christ. They received God's grace. They were encouraged by the grace of God being communicated to them through the apostles. And they were rejoicing because they knew that their confidence in light wholly in the grace of God, the person of Jesus Christ. Is that what you rejoice in this morning? Are you rejoicing in this letter? Are you rejoicing in this good news? You've been set free. You don't have a yoke on you anymore. No more constraint. You're not weighed down any longer. You've been rebuilt. You've been brought into God's family. You can come now into God's restricted presence by His grace, freely to find mercy and grace in time of need. And your standing is there, not because of any merit, but because of faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. They rejoiced. The message was encouraging. It was comforting. It brought refreshment to them. I think that God wants to bring refreshment to us as well in the grace of God. And he wants us to extend refreshment to other people. All of us need God's grace. All of us are called to extend God's grace to other people. But you know, at times we can forget that. 
At times we can forget the same grace that saved our brothers and sisters. And by the way, we can be aware that sometimes our brothers and sisters here don't deserve God's grace, you know, if they do something wrong. You ever aware of people here offending you, doing something you don't like? We can forget that that's, they equally deserve wrath like us. And they equally receive grace like us. And we both come by grace, not by merit. So before you judge other people, remember that if you don't want to be judged by God on the basis of your merits or demerits, stop doing that to other people. We're prone to think of ourselves as better than somebody else. You know, we're also all prone here to bitterness and resentment. We're, we're prone to unforgiveness. We're prone, Jesus told us in, in, in Matthew, we're prone to notice the speck in other people's eyes and forget that we've got this humongous log coming out of our own eye. We're not aware of the grace of God that despite those logs has made us right before God. And God now sees us as holy, even though we've got these logs coming out of our eyes. We forget we have these big heavy logs in our own eyes. We need the grace of God and the help of others to get those logs out and to to carry them away. We have to be careful that we treat each other with the same grace that we've received, that we don't lay yokes on each other's necks. Let us not be a church that's, that's full of people putting yokes on each other making sure they're conformed to some external observances. Let's be a church that frees people from those yokes, that encourages people, that extends the same grace that we've received because we didn't deserve it. And so let's show that grace to other people. We couldn't live up to God's standards, but Jesus, the only perfect righteous one, he did. And then he subjected himself to punishment and cruel death so he could take our place and he could take all the guilt that we earned for not being good enough and he was accepted for us. So now by God's grace, not because of anything we've done, he calls us to himself, he saves us that we might be rebuilt and restored, that he might restore and rebuild our ruined lives. There's a lot of ruined lives here, right? All of us have some kind of life that's been ruined. Jesus came to rebuild and restore that. He's called us to himself to receive his grace freely. So let's extend his grace so that others might experience his joy as well. Amen? Let's stand, if you will, and then we're gonna sing a song. Matt, pick something out. I'm sure you're gonna do a great job like you always do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. God, I pray that we might revel in, that we might rejoice in your grace, that we might not try to put any yoke on any fellow believer here, Lord, that we might repent if we've been doing that. God, I pray as well that we might throw off any yoke of slavery, any yoke of bondage, or any ideas of having to be conformed into somebody else's image off of us, Lord, and we might be set free. God, I pray we might receive your grace that we might just leap for joy in your grace, knowing that we don't have to 
meet anybody else's standards because you have done what we could never do. You've met God's standards. We pray these things in your name. Amen.